All right, thank you, Laura. Good morning, or good evening, those of you who slept in, and those of you watching in your car, or those of you listening on the podcast, wherever you are in the world, glad you're here with us. Um, okay, so um, this is our passage today, and if it sounds familiar, there's a reason for that, and we're going to talk about that. So this is actually the third time that Luke says the same thing, the same story over and over and over. So um, we're going to talk about why. Um, we're going to talk about our main subject today, I think, is really going to be centered around salvation, about what it is. Um, and I've talked about this before. I had a sermon um, not too long ago called How to Get Saved. Um, I think it was, you know what, it may have been a year ago now. 2020 has been five years in one year. Um, but this, uh, this morning, I'm going to open up sort of some more questions that people have about salvation. Um, and we're going to talk about some of these things. And a lot of it's going to stem from a particular verse, verse 14, uh, if you want to check that out. Um, make sure I'm in the light here. Am I, am I I'm in the light? I'm good? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to open, open us up in a word of prayer. And then we're going to talk first off, starting off, about why... Luke has told the same story three times, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this. Father, thank you for giving us a place um, to, uh, to make these services uh, for our people. I lift each and every one of them up. I lift up those in our community who are um, struggling financially, who have lost work. Um, I pray that they would reach out. I pray that we would take care of them and carry them through this time, and that we would be there for them. I pray that... Uh, um, I pray for those who are um, experiencing isolation and, uh, and loneliness. I pray that you would be with them in whatever way we can. I pray with those that are sick. Um, I pray for wisdom for the doctors um, out there working and serving you in this way. Um, I pray that we would look back on this time and, uh, and, and say that we did what we could, that we did the right thing. I pray that we would uh, um, understand how sacred it is that we give of ourselves um, as, as you did for us in this way um, <clears throat> and that we wait to gather until we know um, that it is time for us to. I pray that you would lead us in that way. Um, and so I lift up right now to you. I lift up these words I'm about to speak. I lift, lift up these texts I'm about to read. I pray that you would be in all of this, that you would speak through me, that you would remind me of the things that I've studied this week, and you would allow me to say only the things that you would like me to say, and nothing more and nothing less. Um, thank you. And all of this. Amen. Um, so, um, we're going to start off talking about why it is that, that Luke has chosen in the book of Acts to tell the same story three times. And this isn't the only time he does this. Um, it's a really peculiar thing, but honestly, a lot of times we don't, we don't recognize this. We are very capable as modern Americans of reading a text and not even picking up on the fact that it's repeating the same thing over and over and over. Um, actually, Laura asked me before she started this, she was like, am I, am I reading the right thing? We've already read this. I'm like, actually, we haven't read this. It just sounds the same because it is the same story, and this is the third time that it's told. Modern, modern readers usually don't understand why we would do this, or we just don't even notice it. Um, but it's a really interesting thing. I mean, um, we have today infinite space to write. Uh, we're very familiar with people repeating stuff. Um, <laughs> if you watched a lot of 90s sitcoms, um, once a year, twice a year, they have the clip show where they take all the old stuff and they pack it in. Um, 
we, we have infinite media. We can do this. We can tell the same story over and over and over again. Um, I've been reading for the first time. I've been, re- I've been reading the Harry Potter books with my kids. I've never read Harry Potter growing up. Um, I was a good Christian. We didn't read Harry Potter books with wizards and stuff. Um, only only unless, unless Tolkien wrote it. But I was allowed to read like Genesis and Judges. And if you've ever read the Bible, there's stuff in there. Um, anyways, th- so... But I, I've been reading Harry Potter, and I've gotten really annoyed that, like, they keep retelling the whole story of the kid. Like, if you started on book, <laughs> if you started on book three, you don't get to know what happened. Um, but anyway, so we, we're very familiar with people having unlimited space, unlimited resources to tell the same story over and over. To, but, but this is not how it was in the ancient world. They were by no means unlimited in their space. They wrote on papyrus. Papyrus, uh, it was... Here's, a, here's, a, here's an, a sort of a basic look of what a scroll would look like in the ancient world. Um, they were very, very big. Um, and this was about as big as they could, they could get. You would hold these things. It would, you would sort of, sometimes two people would carry them. Um, they're massive. And you had a very limited space in which you could work. They're made of papyrus, which is like a reed that grows down by the water, and they cut it, and they pound it. If you've ever been to Epcot, all you Floridians, you know. You've, you, you've ridden... What is it? Spaceship Earth, and they've got the guy there making the papyrus. That's this. Um, and they had very limited space, and so the books that they were writing had to be planned out uh, very specifically, the things that they were going to talk about. Um, Luke, his writings, both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, are incredibly long, um, and it's very surprising that he's retelling the same thing several times because he has limited space. There's this passage that... Um, in uh, John chapter 21, at the end of John's gospel, he says something really interesting. He says this. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Um, and it <laughs> this kind of bothers me because I, I, know, I know John's life. John is the only apostle to live, to not be killed at a young age, to live to a ripe old age probably in the city of Ephesus. He, he's the only apostle to go to be an old man. He had plenty of time to write more books. And I'm kind of like, John, I know, like, you could try, though. You could try to give us more information. But he didn't. Um, but Luke had to be very selective with his writings. Um, yet still, in all of this, he, he repeats the same thing over and over and over again. He repeats the story of Cornelius and Peter's, Peter's vision, especially three times. He does this with Paul, too. Paul's conversion story is told three times. And so we have a lot of questions about why this would happen. Why are we telling the same thing over and over and over again? And I think this is something that we're supposed to ponder as readers of the text. Um, <clears throat> and so I wanted to talk a little bit to get started here this morning about a few reasons why this would be happening. So for starters, there is a significance, there is a significance in the number three in the ancient world. Um, and that significance is, it's basically the, the ancient Jewish writers are always picking numbers and repeating these numbers over and over and over again. And for the Christians, the number three is particularly important for them. It's the symbol of like the end of one thing and the beginning of another thing, of death, three days of burial, and resurrection. And so... Each time you see him repeating the same thing three times, it is a symbol of the end of one era, either in the life of the church or in the life of a person or the life of a ministry, and the beginning of this whole other way of doing things. Um, And so it's this symbol of sort of of death of the old thing and this birth of the new thing, always death 
and the birth, death of the old, birth of the new. Now, the second reason why there's repetition in the, book of, of, uh, in the book of Acts from the writer of Luke is that he's emphasizing these vital moments in the founding of the church, these moments that they look for as sort of these, these pivotal moments in the church, the most important things that we know about the church. And, and these particular things that he's telling three times are the pinnacle of what we need to understand. It was always one nationality. It was always the Jewish people. But suddenly there is this break in the chain and the doors are open and the Gentiles, these others, are coming in. And the question is, why and what does this mean for us? There are these moments, and it's not only that. I think it's, it's probable, and other scholars will say this as well, that the reason Luke is emphasizing these particular times is because when he is writing, he is probably dealing with similar things. He is probably dealing with um, more conversations about whether or not the Gentiles belong in the church or whether or not they should become more Jewish, like God-fearers, like, uh, like, like circumcised Jews, uh, whether they should keep the Sabbath. And so they're fighting these same battles over and over again. And so when he writes, he emphasizes, this is what happened. Um, and it's not just in the life of the church, but I think these things are also in the life of the believer, of the everyday Christian in his day and in our day. There are these moments in our lives where we are looking for our own life, in our own lives, um, there are these moments when everything sort of stops and ends there and this new thing begins. It's this sort of pivotal moment. There's moments when a new way is revealed when you can no longer go back to these old ways. These moments when we realize that God is no longer back there. I always thought God was here, but turns out God is here. And I will leave behind this old way and enter into this new way. There are these moments when we realize that God is not back there somewhere. There is nothing to recapture from the past. There is nothing worth bringing forward that God is doing something brand new. And there are a lot of people who would love to take the church back to these old ways, just like there were a lot of Jewish people in their day who would like to take the church back to the Jewish ways in, in the way that they existed. And the writers of the New Testament are very clear. We are not going back. We are doing something different. We are doing something brand new. Um, wildly new. God's future is ahead of us. It is not behind us, and God does not want us to go back. And I think God wants us to ponder this all of the time because there's a lot of people today trying to drag the church back into these old, um, dead ways that God is no longer working in, and He wants to bring us forward into this new thing. And so, in fact, perhaps you've noticed these new things that God is always revealing to us about the world, to making us look at these old ways as downright repressive. There are ways, and I've talked about this not too long ago. I'm always looking back at myself five years ago, ten years ago, and saying, I cannot believe I thought that way. And, and nobody spoke to me to open my eyes and say that I was wrong. And when I look back at where I was, I think it's downright regressive. And when I look back at the churches I went to, it was downright regressive. And I would, when I look back at these things that the church is trying to do sometimes, I say, that is no longer where, what God is doing. At the time, it was important. God brought people forward to that point, and now God is bringing people forward to the next thing. We look back on what we once believed, and we realize that God is no longer there. God has moved on to the next thing. So um, there is, and there's more than just this, uh, when we talk about the repetition in the book of, uh, in, the, in the writings of Luke. Um, so we have, we have the, the, the last thing I want to show you is that Luke adds details in each telling as he moves along, he piles on, he drops these little sort of little nuggets of information in that open up the story even more every single time. And there's one bit of information that we're going to focus in on today. I may, even, I may even do this text one more week next week because there's far more. 
But there's something I really want to zero in on today, and it's found right here in verse uh, 14, 13 and 14. I'll start at 13 and then read 14. It says this. Um, it's, 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 it's God talking to Cornelius. It's this angel talking to Cornelius. He says, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Um, so, I, wanna, I want you to focus in on this and pay attention to this. Um, basically, oh man, hold on, let me find my notes here. I, I, I went way off. This is very normal. I, I, I do this on, on normal Sunday mornings as well, so I feel right at home. Um, so, um, he says, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So Luke clearly does not suppose that Cornelius is saved already. Okay, and this is really fascinating to me. Luke doesn't suppose that Cornelius has already achieved this sort of salvation and then nearly, merely needed to be informed about sort of given information about Jesus. Like now, okay, now that you're saved, now you prayed the prayer, now you're going to go to church, and now you're going to learn about Jesus. That's not how he's coming into this. He's literally saying, you will be saved. There is something that's going to happen that is going to bring salvation to you and your household. This is for all of you collectively. And so the questions that I have, that I always had growing up as a child, all through college, and even in my young adult years, most of them centered around salvation. Um, and a big question that I always had was sort of this one. I wrote this down today, and I want to talk about this. What does it mean for us as women and men to be saved from our sinful, broken humanity, to have our Imago Dei redeemed and restored as a new creation in and through Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we talk about salvation, this is not what we're talking about. Oftentimes when we talk about salvation, and when we talk about even Cornelius' salvation, we look at it as he was going to hell, he prayed a prayer, now he's going to heaven. And that's pretty much it. Other than that, you're going to sort of try to live like a Christian as much as you can until you die. But when you die, that's when it really kicks in. Um, but the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, assumes that salvation actually implies living in a relational and ethical correspondence to some future reality. If you look at, especially Acts chapter 2 and especially Acts chapter 4, and you read the ways that the Christians are living, um, something has changed. Something in their life has caused them to orientate their lives around some new way of existing in the world, some new way of being that corresponds with something that they know about the future. They have ceased to live how they were, and they have come to the conclusion that there is something new happening, and we are going to begin living like that now. And so there is this correspondence between the way that they are living and how they think everyone will be living one day, how God's people should always have and always will live. It means that our humanity actually is transformed and grounded in this sort of true image of God. When we ask about being saved, I want to be clear. When we, I'm just going to put it up here like this. When we talk about being saved, we are not talking about getting saved. That's not what we're talking about, getting saved. Like, like what does that even mean? We use this phrase all the time. We never ponder actually what we are even saying. We use the phrase, um, when did you get saved? Well, I got saved this point. There was a moment where I wasn't saved, and then I got it. I got saved. Um, and this phrase has always undergirded sort of us, it's undergirded by us talking about what we call a personal Lord and a personal Savior. Um, but the personal encounter often has 
everything really to do with a personal religious experience. Something happened, and then I had an experience, and then I knew God, me. And it's between me and God, and that's it. And that's pretty much where it ends. But you see, whenever someone in the scriptures has a personal and religious experience in the scriptures, it always leads them to this covenanting for the love of others and God and creation. It always, in the scriptures, leads them, whoever has this personal experience, leads them into this whole other thing. The experience, and I'll, I'll put it up here like this very clearly. The experience might be personal, and yes, sure, sure the, the experience that you have with God is personal, but the salvation is not personal. The salvation is communal. It leads you into this whole new thing with other people, with a community, with a new people. Um, it, is, it always leads to this communal change. It always leads to addressing an entire community of people in a specific way in, in the scriptures. Whenever you see someone have this personal experience, it always ends with like a whole bunch of people there doing something else, something different. It always changes an entire structure, an entire system that they're working in. The experience might be personal, again, but the salvation is communal. The salvation is communal. So the problem, and there are a few, and, and I think we're going to spend some time here for a few minutes. We're going to talk about the problem with talking about salvation as sort of this personal thing, as this me thing. So let's make more lists. I made a lot of lists today, and that's what we're going to do. Um, so what are the problems with talking about your salvation in a way that is personal? Well, um, for starters, it revolves around escape, not restoration. It involves you being freed from something and not dealing with it anymore, just being done with it, just moving on. Um, and this personal escape, it allows us, because we, oftentimes we get here because someone tells us about this tragedy where we are heading towards, and the goal is to escape it, that tragedy, but it never really deals with anything going on in our world today, where we are. It never addresses anything having to do with the suffering in the world around us. And in fact, it offers nothing to suffering in the world when our salvation is merely personal. And when you hear people say, just preach the gospel, don't do anything else, that message is basically saying, there is nothing to that. There is nothing you can do to address that. Just keep doing this and just let God do God's thing. But there is nothing that you can do at all. And that is not how the early Christians understood any of this. Um, the second thing that the personal salvation message does is it leaves the Imago Dei behind. A good theology of the Imago Dei is, is I would argue, the most profound thing that a church could have. An understanding of why you have been placed here. So that when people look at you, they see what God is like. And when we understand a good theology of the Imago Dei, um, a lot of us are suddenly very terrified because we realize that people are looking us, looking at us, and they think maybe God is like us, but we are a mess. And so oftentimes we, we preach messages that like tell people, you are terrible, you are horrible, you cannot be better, but God is really great, but there's nothing you can do. You're a big mess. But the problem is, if you have a good theology of the Imago Dei, um, then you understand that you have been called to a role, an office, a status, a vocation to be the presence of God in this world, that you have something to say to evil and injustice, 
and those who are unmerciful uh, and those who are greedy and those who are hoarding. You have something to say to all of that. Um, another thing, like the Imago Dei is left behind. The relational, the corporate union, uh, the communion of men and women together for and with God and one another is replaced with this, I'm saved and I'm out. Um, I'm I, I found my get out of get out of hell free card and I'm out. And the next thing that I would argue the personal salvation message does is it replaces the Imago Day with a narcissistic self as the main and central character in everything, in every subject, all through the text. You read the text and you see yourself as David. And you see your not not the ones cowering in the back. By the way, David is not you. David is, is Christ. He's the Christ character. Um, when you read the stories of Jesus and the woman washing his feet, you see yourself as washing the feet of Jesus. You don't see yourself as the Pharisee sitting at the table mocking her for what she is doing, for living in this way. You see yourself in all the good characters in the text. You never see yourself in the story of the Good Samaritan as the one stepping aside. Um, the narrative becomes us as the center of all things. And this brings us to the next thing that, the, that this personal salvation does. It creates a God who exists for the creature as opposed to the creature existing for God and God's creation. Suddenly, you no longer exist for the benefits of other beings, both animals and other people. Suddenly, we have God. Like, we have God. God doesn't have us. Um, this is a huge problem. It creates a God that is here to serve us, and it creates a God that is there to fulfill your hopes and your dreams. Um, and we invite people to church, and we say, um, what are your hopes and your dreams? God wants to help you fulfill those things, and we, the church, want to help you fulfill your hopes and your dreams. But the fact is, it is entirely possible that in order for God's work to be completed, your dreams need to fail because they're selfish and they're narcissistic. And they're about you and not the redemption of God's world, not the restoration of all those who are suffering around us. It is possible that in order for God's plan to succeed, your plan must fail. And most of us Americans do not want to accept this. We assume God's plan is for our wealth and health and well-being. Yet when you retell the stories of the apostles, this was not the story at all. Suddenly we think we have God rather than God having us. We, we see suffering in the world and we see suffering happening all around us and we post some things to Facebook that are like, it's okay because God has me. And I agree, God does have you. Um, but probably the reality should be that when we see suffering in the world, instead of saying, it'll be okay, I've got Jesus, we could say, it'll be okay, Jesus has people there. Jesus has people there. It's okay because I know Christians are there. Doing their work. But that is not how most Western American Christians speak. We speak as if, I'll be okay. I've got Jesus. But the fact is, and the question is, does Jesus actually have you there for your community to bring his presence there in their midst? Or have you shrugged that part of it for a narcissistic personal salvation that begins and ends with you? Um... This is an all-too-prevalent misunderstanding of salvation um, in our churches today. Too often we talk about how God exists for us, um, that God's dream for the world is the same thing as ours. Um, but listen, 
the unique and personal encounter with God. I'm not saying it's not important. I actually think it's vital. The unique personal encounter that you have with God is vital. Jesus constantly tells stories, constantly, about God seeking out and finding his children all the time. The story of Moses in the desert has a personal encounter with God in a burning bush. And we love to tell this one that God is trying to call your attention to himself in the midst of the wilderness in which you are wandering. Yes, he is. But it's not about you. Your salvation has to do with God's plan for the world. Also, Paul on the road to Damascus. When God calls Paul, it did not end with Paul. God called Paul because God planned on bringing in Gentiles and merging Jews and Gentiles, two factions of people that absolutely hated each other, and God plans on bringing them together. It's the same thing when God calls both Peter and Cornelius. They both have individual experiences and these mystical experiences with God that were not actually about them. Their, their, their experience was personal, but the salvation was communal. And God tells, Jesus tells stories all the time about, yes, about God reaching out to a single person. Um, when he tells the, the parable of the, of, the, when, of, of the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go after the one, yes, that is a personal God seeking a personal, um, a personal sheep. Like, that's the metaphor. Yes, uh, the woman who loses a coin does not stop searching for her lost coin. She's not content with all the other coins she has. Yes, she wants the one. Of uh, the father whose prodigal son has left is not content. He's not, oh, I've got another one. Like, he's not content just having the one in the household. He's waiting every day for the other one to come back. And when he sees it, he takes off running to embrace that son. Yes, the stories are there. But after Moses meets God, God saves him so that God can do what? Rescue Israel from Egypt. Free the oppressed and free the slaves. Why? Why does Jesus appear to Paul in this dramatic way and introduce himself in this way? So that Paul could spend the rest of his life bringing the outcasts into the church. Why does, 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 does Jesus appear to Peter and Cornelius? Why do they have their visions? So that both communities who have always been kept apart can come back together. The experience might be personal, yes, but the salvation is communal. Someone who has been saved is someone who is living in a relational and ethical resemblance to God's future reality. This is what we see with the person who has received salvation. They enter into a, a communal life with others, as in the body of Christ. Um, there is, um, I mean, I, I assure you, I, I, I assume, okay, let me gather my thoughts here before I move forward. I'm going to assume that your salvation, if you tell me you're a Christian, and you tell me that you are saved, that you got saved, I'm assuming that your salvation did not end with you. Because this is what salvation means. That, that, that your response to salvation was to enter into a community of people living in a new way proclaiming justice for the oppressed, mercy for the transgressor, healing for the sick, embracing of the ostracized, and that you now belong to a group of people who recognize this same thing because this is what it means in the New Testament when somebody comes to Christ. They enter into the body. This is what it means. There is in the mind of the apostle, and I want to be clear um, because a lot of us struggle with this. In the mind of the apostle, there is no such thing as a solo Christian, a Christian living life by themselves. That does not exist in the text anywhere. It, that, that is a misunderstanding. The personal Christianity thing of I have my relationship with God and I'm all by myself 
and I don't need the church, and I don't need anyone else. That is an American invention that is foreign to anything the ancient people would understand. There is no such thing. And I've met a lot of people over the years who have deconstructed their faith. They've left the church um, with the idea that they can follow Jesus on their own without a community, with just their feelings and their personal daily sort of prayers and, and meditations and, and, and looking for mystical experiences in whatever way that they can. But the problem is, in the text, what is clear is that when you follow Jesus, he is going to lead you into a community called the body of Christ. You cannot be a part of the body without the rest. You cannot practice justice on your own. You cannot practice forgiveness on your own. Love, forgiveness and love necessitate, by definition, someone else to forgive and love. This is how it works. You cannot be a part of the body of Christ without being a part of the body. There's this theologian, German theologian that I've quoted many times. He's one of my favorite theologians. Um, he wrote during World War II. He says this, to be in Christ is to be in the church. Aaron's Kesemann. Um, Kesemann is, is German for cheese man, by the way. Another reason to love Aaron's Kesemann. Um, he wrote a lot from, uh, from a, a Nazi prison after speaking up during World War II and and excommunicating all the Nazis from his church. And they arrested him and they threw him in prison. And every day his congregation would meet outside his window and he'd bring accordions and they would sing hymns and songs and he would write them letters and he wrote an entire commentary uh, about the book of Hebrews from a Nazi prison. Amazing guy. Um, these people understood that being a follower of Christ means being a part of the body of Christ. Um, the lamb, all these stories that Jesus told about the lamb and the coin and the, the son, the lamb was returned to the fold. He goes and finds the lamb. He doesn't say, you're good now. Me and you are going to go over here and take a walk, and they can stay. No, like, he brings him back to the fold. The woman's coin is returned to the dowry with the rest of the coins. The disgraced son is restored with honor and love to his position in the household. He's celebrated and loved, much to his brother's disappointment, by the way. His brother, who actually ends up outside the party by the end of the story. Interesting thought. Um, the assumption that we should be working from is that every human being belongs in this kingdom. Everyone that you meet, you know, belongs in this kingdom of God, yet they are being enslaved by the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus wants to come and save American Christians from this and American pagans from this and all kinds of um, people around the world. God wants to pull them in, wake them up to this new kingdom that exists and say, you belong here too. Salvation. Join this new kingdom, this new people, this new world. Um, join it. Um, we do this survey every few years at Watermark, and we do it just to sort of get a, a grasp on like where the people are at. Um, one part of it is like this suggestion box thing and, um, and all kinds of questions about theology and what do you think about this and what do you think about this. Um, the, my favorite part is sort of like the, the comment section at the end. Write whatever you want, comment section. And there's always a few requests. Um, every year a percentage of people write that Tommy should specifically stop talking about anything having to do with politics at all. No politics at all. Um, that I should completely avoid any mention of anything that could be interpreted as national politics, local politics, world politics, anything. That I just shouldn't talk about it. Um, because you see, like religion, um, we've gotten very good at making politics personal. We have our personal religion, we think. We think that we can be a Christian by ourselves. And we think that we can be 
somehow an American, which means we're a part of a nation by ourselves, that nobody should hear any of our thoughts. But the problem is, the word politics comes from the word polis. You know what polis means? Polis literally means, uh, it refers to a gathering of people living in a shared space. Like, politics is communal. It's not personal. It is literally about everyone. Politics cannot be personal. It directly affects everyone around you. And so when Jesus is teaching these people how to live, that is political. When the Christians call everybody together in Acts chapter 2, and they start dwelling together in these households that are vastly different from any households that existed, that was a political statement. When they said Jesus is Lord, you know who they're saying is not Lord? Caesar is not Lord. Everything that they were doing was political. Every word in the Bible has political ramifications to the world that we are living in. God intends to build a world that will replace the one in which we live, and there is nothing more political than that. And there's this quote by G.K. Chesterton, who was C.S. Lewis's um, teacher, and I love it. And he says this, I never discuss anything else except politics and religion. There is nothing else to discuss. That's how Chesterton puts it. Um, I love that. Uh, everything else, basically, he says that everything else you could possibly discuss is a subset of polity. That's what it is. Chesterton understood that most political discussions can all be boiled down. And he says, he says as much. Every political discussion that you could possibly have can boil down to one question that Jesus asked. Who is my neighbor, though? That is what politics is asking. Every decision that you make that has to do with the community around you, with society, with the world at large, you are asking the question, but who is my neighbor, though? Like, really, who is my neighbor? Jesus addressed this. Um, when Jesus tells them how they are to be living, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, is a scandalous phrase. Good Samaritan? There was no such thing. Jesus invented that, and now it is how we talk about people doing good works. Jesus was all about changing our view of everything. But when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he's telling them how they should live. And they knew it. They knew how they were supposed to live. But one of the Pharisees, trying to find a way out, he looks at me and goes, but honestly, who's my neighbor? That doesn't mean what you say it means, does it? Um, but unfortunately, it did for them. Uh, these are questions that Christians, that Christians are, are, are very familiar with. And so this angel goes to Cornelius and appears to him and says, I want you to send to Joppa for Peter. And uh, for Simon, who is called Peter. And he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. And how did that happen? How were they saved? These two households, um, Cornelius' household, which is basically like this Jewish gathering of Gentiles, they couldn't even enter into their house. And then the Jewish community, the Jewish Christians, they are merged together, and they become one. In that day, this was wildly, first off, like I talked about last week, this was a transgression of every kind of cultural and political law that existed in that time. It was political in every way. It was a dangerous thing to do. But the salvation came when they were all unified and brought back together. And it says they were baptized and they became brothers and sisters. When they entered into the church together as equals. This is the direction that this was taking all along. And this is what it meant. The reason the story is told three times is because it was the death of an, of, of an old way and the birth of a new way. All of that was to answer that question. <laughs> the reason it's told three times was to 
to end that old way and to give absolute birth to this whole new thing. Um, it represents the birth of a new people in the world, a people, uh, a people, not a get-out-of-jail-free card. This was not about later. This was about right now. Salvation was about now, in this world now. Personal salvation, I want to be clear, personal salvation, it cannot change the world. Only a new people that understand that salvation is communal can change the world. That we're inviting people into this new way of being, this new way of living. Um, your calling, again, might be personal, but the salvation that you receive is communal. It is to the body of Christ that you have been saved, and there is nothing personal about salvation. The experience might be personal, but the calling is communal. And in fact, I would argue very strongly that when the Imago Dei turns inward, when we make, when we make salvation about us, and that's what I mean by the Imago Dei turning inwards, the image of God in the world begins to look at itself. When we begin to look at ourselves and turn inwards, what happens is, in the words of a theology teacher whose quote I'm going to read in a minute, uh, she said, uh, when we do this, the imago begins to precede the day. And when the imago begins to precede the day, we, we turn God consciously into our own image. This is what I mean. We turn God consciously into our own image, be it white, God being white, or Asian, or male, or black, or female, or patriarchal king, or even... I mean, we describe God as, not, not us, but people, describe God as earth goddess or a ground of being, if you're a podcaster, <laughs> um, or, you know, what have you. Salvation, though, has never been about getting in touch with your true self. It never has. Salvation has never been about getting in touch with your true self. It has always been about becoming a part of God's true people in this world. That's what it's about. And don't turn this into a meme this week. Don't do <laughs> um, I, I want to end this morning's uh, sort of conversation about salvation with, um, I, I, had this, I had this theology, theology teacher that I just mentioned, um, and she was brilliant, and she opened my eyes to so many things years ago. Um, probably, she probably taught some of the most impactful um, theology classes I've ever sat through, and she went into great lengths to help me understand the Imago Dei and salvation in this whole new way. Her name was, was uh, Cherith Fee Nordling, if you've ever heard of Gordon Fee, this famous theologian from the turn of the century, like in the 50s or so. Um, Gordon Fee, his daughter, Cherith Fee Nordling. She was my theology professor. I want to end with a quote of hers. I want you to ponder it uh, and, uh, and, and listen to what she says. I contend that to be saved is to be renewed in the true image of God as women and men in Christ, to have our relationality restored so that our sinful selves, hopelessly in curvatus in se, which is curved inwards on oneself, are set free to be new creations in true divine and human koinonia, which is the word for fellowship. Um... I contend that to be saved is to be renewed in the true image of God as women and men in Christ, to have our relationality restored so that our sinful selves hopelessly turned in on ourselves, and that's what we are. Ourselves are constantly inward looking and turning in on ourselves and our hopes and our dreams and our image and all this, when it should be the image of God 
And we are set free from that. In salvation, we are set free from all of this to be new creations in true and divine fellowship. The type of relationships we've never been allowed to have in this world. Think of all the people that the world around you is telling you that you cannot be friends with, that you cannot be close to. And then take all that and crumble it up and throw it out and invite them to a church gathering. That is how this is supposed to go. And in the gathering, the church gathering is it's simply the place where you would gather with people that you would never gather with under any other circumstances. And what do you do when you're there? You take communion. You understand the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ poured out. That is what it is. It's a good segue, by the way. Let's, uh, let's move into a time of communion. But like, this is what the church is. It's a gathering of people that would never otherwise gather together. There's no concert you would go to where that group of people would be there. There's no community club that you would go to where those type of people would be there. It should be a group of people with diverse thoughts, diverse lifestyles, diverse ways of understanding things, and you come together, diverse sort of socioeconomic classes and races and levels, and, and you come and you stand shoulder to shoulder, and you take communion. You take the, the body of Christ, and you take the blood of Christ, and you stand around together, and you understand that the body of Christ has been broken for every one of these people, and that the blood of Christ has been poured out for every one of these people. And you understand why. Because this is how salvation enters into the world. Jesus allowed his body and blood to be broken and poured out for us. And he is calling us to do the same. To give up our privilege, to give up our desires and our hopes and our dreams so that others may live. And so the body of Christ is broken. The blood of Christ is poured out for our healing and for our salvation. for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Go before us. Help us to understand what salvation is really about. It doesn't end with us. It never started with us. It has actually nothing to do very much with us. What matters is that you are forming a people in this world to live as you have called us to live, to dwell in this new earth. Save us from all these earthly things. Allow us to no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world. Rescue us. Save us. In your name, amen. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you all. Miss you all. I look forward to the day when we will be together again. Go in peace. Go in the image of God and be the image of God where you are. Grace and peace, one another.